Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. Well, you know, I um, want to pray with you, and uh, the um, in in gratitude, I think, to to Deacon and to uh, soon to be Father, and uh, to in gratitude also to Holy Transfiguration Parish, which is so instrumental in organizing with with all this. I will do some of the. I can't do the entire litany with you right now, but some of the litany, the great litany of the Eastern uh, liturgy. Um, so, um, in peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord have mercy. And each, each response, just say, Lord have mercy. All right. For the peace from above and for the salvation of our souls, Lord have mercy. For the uh, peace of the whole world and for the holy church of God and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. For this holy house, for this parish, and for all who enter here with faith, reverence, and the fear of God, let us pray to the Lord. For the bishop of, for our bishop, for all the honorable bishops, for the priests and the deacons and all the clergy and the people of God, let us pray to the Lord. For the president of our country, for the governor of this state, and for all civil authorities, let us pray to the Lord. For this parish that we gather in, and for every city, and for every country, and for all the faithful who live in them, let us pray to the Lord. For favorable weather, for abundance of the fruits of the earth, and for peaceful times and temperate seasons, let us pray to the Lord. For travelers by land, by sea, and by air, for the sick and the suffering, for captives and for their salvation, let us pray to the Lord. For deliverance from all afflictions, wrath, danger, and distress, let us pray to the Lord. Help us, Lord, save us, have mercy on us, and keep us always by your grace. Lord, have mercy. So I have a task today, which is to go through the entire Sermon on the Mount, which I'm not going to do. I mean, it's not going to happen. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Also, uh, a similar material is Luke's version called the Sermon on the Plain. It's interesting, the plain or the mount, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. Very different images, right? But at the end end of the day, we're going to look at Matthew's version, the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's great moral treatise. But be careful with what you hear when you hear morality or ethics or uh, moral theology. One of the dangers is that most of us are heirs to a tradition which um, has tended to emphasize morality and ethics, Christian moral teaching, as a lot of rules to follow. And I do not say that it is not that, but more fundamentally, we have to be very careful to understand that this, this understanding of the moral vision of Jesus Christ and the moral vision of the church is a fairly modern notion, probably less than 500 years old, mostly in response to the Reformation and the Catholic counter-Reformation or the, the great revival of Catholic theology. But um, we have tended to emphasize 
more the rules part of it rather than the vision part of it. Up to, if you go through the scriptural tradition, as we'll look at the Sermon on the Mount today, and then you emphasize also the, um, the fathers of the church, all the way up to and including St. Thomas and the whole scholastic tradition, you are not going to see an emphasis on things that you can't do, but rather virtues. Virtues. And where does sin come in? You know, if you look at the Summa, uh, the Summa of St. Thomas, probably the, the fairest flower of this tradition, where he synthesized and brought it all together, he, there's no section in the Summa on sin. It's not there. You're looking for, where's the section on sin? It's not there. Thomas has a section on virtue. And then, where does sin come in? Well, sin comes in when you, you, you state a virtue, and then there's, there's something related to that virtue by excess or defect. And that's where sin comes in. But the proclamation is not about what you can't do, but what the Lord has given you to be and to become. And if you fall short, well, that's sin. But the point is virtue. The point is salvation. The point is transformation. That's the point. And sadly, we've tended today in the last, and not just today, but in the last 500 years in the church to emphasize what you can't do, what the rules say, and when you transgress, and when you've done something wrong. And that's where the emphasis falls. What not to do, and when you've done something wrong, rather than what to become, and how falling short of that is a great tragedy. Okay, so I hope you see the emphasis, because when we look at the Sermon on the Mount today, I want you to, and by the way, this problem of modern moral theology, and I say modern, in other words, the last 500 years, where we left the scriptural, patristic, and scholastic tradition behind, and we went into casuistry and rules and thou shalt nots, uh, is just beautifully described by a, a, a guy, a very reputable character named Pinkars, uh, in, the, in the book uh, on the sources of Christian ethics, the sources of Christian morality. And uh, he's, a, he's a Dominican, and he wrote this back somewhere in the 80s, but he also you know, kind of stated the, na- the nature of this problem, and tries to point a vision for us forward. Now, be careful, because some of you, I see some of the gears turning in your mind, and if you weren't with me on the morals course, if you will set aside your concern, but, Father, if there aren't rules, and we can't follow the rules, and we don't want to have some vague thing, it's not vague. If you really follow what the Lord is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount today, you will see that He requires more than what rules require, not less. It's expansive. It's a beautiful vision that is rooted in something that's expansive rather than just exactitude and rules and thou shalt nots and the minimalistic notion that we tend to fall into when we just simply have rules and thou shalt nots. The ancient Old Covenant had a lot of thou shalt nots, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments and so on, but the Lord broke that open and, in effect, required not less, but more. And you'll see that as we, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount tonight. I have a huge task. I will not get through the Sermon on the Mount. I'll get through some of it. We'll see how far we get. I have to overlook certain things that are beautiful in themselves, but i just got to overlook them. So let's try to get right to work. What I'd ask you to do is to just ponder with me for a moment. The, 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 you see the picture up there on the, on the slide. 
The sermon begins with Jesus going up on a mountain and taking a seat and teaching. Now, a couple of things should jump to your attention just on that opening line. Jesus is now going up on the mountain to, if you will, proclaim a law. He doesn't need to receive the law like Moses did, but it's a similar vision. Jesus is the new Moses, and just as Moses went up on the mountain to get the law and bring it down, now Jesus does the same. He's the new Moses. If you look at the Matthean Gospel, and there's some beautiful text over there that talk about that, I mean, a disc over there that you can study more on this. Basically, it presents Jesus as a new Moses. And uh, one of the great moments in Moses' life was when he went up on great Mount Sinai and spent all that time up there and received from God the law, the great law of God. And he brought it down. Well, now Jesus is that new Moses, and he's doing the same. So the idea that he goes up on a, on a mountain is very mosaic. Secondly, though, I just want you to see that in the ancient tradition, I'm standing. In America, teachers stand at podiums to teach, and that's our tradition. But in the ancient tradition, and it's still preserved in the church with our bishops, but fundamentally, ancient rabbis and teachers would be seated to teach. The symbol of authority is to be seated and to teach in the seated position. He took his seat and he taught them. Bishops today preserve this, not all of them, but they use, especially for more solemn things like ordinations and other things, uh, they will use something called the fold stool. They're seated in the sanctuary. They are sometimes are seated at the cathedra in the, in the older Latin rite. And they teach from the chair, from the chair. So just take note of that picture. You see Jesus seated. Now, you only see the 12 there, of course. There would have been a larger crowd with him that day. All right? So just a, a visual for you. Now, let's begin now. But you have your Bibles? Open up to Matthew chapter 5. The, the, the Bible, um, the, Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. I'm going to hope to get through a good part of 5, a little bit of 6, and maybe, if we have time, a little bit of 7. But they're going to just sort of pull the hook, and I'm going to get it around my neck, and they're going to pull me out the door at a certain point. So we'll see. Where, that, where, where we get, and I want to respect your time, all right? Now, I've already told you some of this. Be careful. The danger is that we see the Sermon of the Mount as an exhausting list of things to do, a kind of a legalism, uh, a, mor a simple morality, now, or a moralism. Now, here's, here's what I want you to see. But Christianity is not a morality. Christianity is a transformative relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, relationships, just at the human level, I'm not going to talk about with the Lord now, relationships are messy. Did you hear me? Yeah. Relationships are messy, but in, in, a good, in another sense, they're glorious. They're unpredictable. They're rich. They're expansive. See? And relationships. And the relationship with God is rich, transformative is unexpected at times and yet it's always transformative if we trust God and so the Christian life is not just a bunch of rules the Christian life is a relationship now look a man who really loves his wife does not need a rule that says don't break her arm now for, if he's really that weak and confused and well all right there's your rule don't if you're a husband don't break your wife's arm but I hope you don't need that rule. I hope not. 
Law and rules really are for the weak. They are for those who are so messed up that they, they just need basic bottom line stuff. But a man who loves his wife not only is not breaking her arm, he is cherishing her, loving her, respecting her, building her up. Okay? So you see, law is about minimums. Law is about, you know, it's for the weak. Law specifies, if you will, minimums. Relationships soar above that. Love calls for far more than rules could ever specify. And if you've ever been in love, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you can't just reduce it to a certain set of things to do. You always, love wants to do more. Law is looking for the least. Now, I'll give you a quick little parable that I use. A young man who loves a young woman is excited. He wants to please her. He wants to, he's going to be extravagant. A young man who loves a young woman doesn't talk like this. Well, look, your, your birthday's coming up, and there's this dumb tradition that I'm supposed to buy you a gift. So what's the cheapest gift I can buy you and to meet the requirement but not have to spend too much money? Now, she's gonna, if she, he talks to her like that, she's going to slap him and never see him again. Amen? But listen to how some Catholics talk. Do I have to go to Mass? Is it really a holy day? Do I need to go to confession? How often? What's the latest I can get to Mass and still have met my obligation? <laughs> See? Now, people who are weak might need rules like that. But if you love God, and you know He loves you, you don't ask questions like that. You're excited, you get to Mass, you want to be there. If you run late, you'll understand, God will understand, but you want to be there, you're excited. You go to confession because I love you, Lord, and I'm, I'm sorry that I fall short, and I love you, and I love my neighbor. See? So you see the vision, how different love and transformative relationship is from simple rules and regulations, right? Okay, now, <clears throat> too many moral treatises amount to a set of rules, a systems of behavior, and God is actually outside the system looking down on us in judgment. See? All right? But note the catechism's title for the moral section is not rules to follow or else. That's not, that's not what that section of the cat... The, does anyone know what the title... Well, it's right there in your notes. So you, it's titled, Life in Christ. When you have met Jesus Christ, what starts to happen to you? How does your life begin to change? What's the vision of loving God and loving neighbor that sets up in you and that you eagerly follow? You see how different that is than just do this or else? Okay, moving on. Now, don't try to read all that. You've got it in front of you. You've got a handout. This is just the overall general outline of the Sermon on the Mount. But let me just say this as a standard, and then we're going to get right into the text. The Sermon on the Mount is not a bunch of rules. The Sermon on the Mount is he's painting a picture. Jesus is painting a picture for you and for me of the transformed human person. What happens to a person, a man, a woman, when they meet Jesus Christ, are baptized, cleansed of their sins, and begin to live in a life-changing, transformative relationship with Him? What happens to them? Well, a lot of things start to happen to them. 
Their priorities change. They start to see sins be put to death. They start to see grace coming alive. They become less stingy. They become more generous. They become less lustful, more chaste. They become more forgiving and they hold less grudges. Not because they have to, but because they want to. Because the love of Jesus Christ and His grace is transforming them. Do you see how different that is than, here's a bunch of rules, and you better do it, or you're going to go to hell. Now, you probably will go to hell if you don't do it. (laughs) But listen, don't live that way. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, I have met Jesus Christ, and my life is changing. My life, I'm becoming more loving, more forgiving, more merciful. I'm becoming more chaste. I'm becoming more kind and generous to the poor. I have different priorities. I love to pray. My life is changing. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. He's painting a picture. Not just giving you a bunch of rules. Are you praying with me? All right. So let's begin to now move into the text. Let's see. Oh, I've got to remember I'm pointing this way. Okay. <clears throat> the basic principle that the Lord gives us in the entire Sermon on the Mount is this. The principle, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. We're not getting rid of the Ten Commandments. But rather, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, the word fulfill in English can mean two very different things. To fulfill something could mean to meet the minimum requirements. Well, let's see. Uh, uh, they say in the political world right now, you gotta get, someone says you've got to get born in America to be an American. So I, I, I met that requirement. I got born in Chicago, Illinois. I'm an American. Okay. Jesus was the, supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And he was. So he met, he met the minimum requirement. Now, in that sense, fulfill is to meet a minimum but look at, the, look at the word again, if you can see it up there. Fulfill. To fill something full. And that's what the Lord's getting at. The Greek word parison, the Greek is, it means to exceed, to abundantly fill something full. Now, you know, let's say somebody comes to your door and they say, I'm awful thirsty, could you give me a, could you give me a glass of water? You say, oh, okay. And you go to your friend, and you bring a half glass, you have a little Dixie cup, and you hand them the thing, and you, you're so angry with them, you spill half of it on the way, they get a little half of a Dixie cup of water. Technically, you gave them water. But if you love them, and you care about them, here's a human being who's thirsty, maybe you'll take a nice glass of water, you get a, a, a nice cloth napkin, you'll put some ice in it, you get them some nice filtered water, and you bring it to them with love. You fill the glass full. Not just with water, but with love. You see how different. So the Lord is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I have come to fill it full. I want you to see not the law as a bare minimum to me. What's the latest I can get to Mass and still have fulfilled the requirement? I'm not talking about that, says the Lord. I've come to fill it full. I love the Lord. I'm going to be at church early on Sunday and stay late. (laughs) Even if the sermon is long. I mean, I say to you, unless heaven and earth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, the smallest part of the letter of the law will pass from the law until all things have taken place. Now, the Lord is not talking here of, say, dietary laws or customary laws, whether you wear a yarmulke or a prayer shawl or whether you don't eat certain foods, but he is talking here now about the moral law. None of it is being changed. 
It is, however, being seen in a richer, newer light. And that's what he means. That word fulfilled is very important. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches to others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Pay attention. The Pharisees and the scribes were very legalistic. I don't want to go through all the details with you, but, you know, they could find a way to parse every law and bring it down to the barest minimums. And they thought they were holy doing it. At the end of the day, the Lord is saying, it's not enough for you to meet the minimum requirement of the law. When you've met me, and I've met you, and I'm really working, and I'm living my life in you, you're not just not going to kill somebody, you're going to love your enemy. You see the difference? It's not enough to not kill your enemy. You're supposed to love him, because I do. I see how you're fulfilling the law there. You're not just meeting the requirement. Okay, I didn't kill him. I didn't retaliate. I bit my tongue and did not say it. I just hope God will cast him into hell. Bring down some lightning, Lord. That's not... You haven't met Jesus Christ when you talk like that. Now, we all get angry. I get that. But once you cool down, you want your enemy to be saved and to know the Lord. And maybe he'll stop being your enemy then. Okay, moving on. I've got to keep moving. I'm sorry. Gotta, I love to spend more and more time on all this. <clears throat> so, he now then... Um, I have to skip over some stuff. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that he... Um, oh, isn't that interesting? Did I miss the Beatitudes? What happened? Okay. Well, let's talk for a minute about... He starts out with the Beatitudes. I thought I'd put them on the slides. I'm sorry. The Beatitudes. What a beautiful, quick summary of what the Lord wants to do for you. And again, I don't have time to develop them all. I've got to do them real quick, move right on through them. But here comes... The Lord, first of all, paints a little mini thumbnail. You know how you have in your computer, you got a thumbnail, and then you pop, you pop the thumbnail and open, the bigger picture pops up. Amen? So this is the thumbnail. The Lord says, listen. He first of all talks about light and salt, and I don't have time to develop it, except to say that light is a... We, we Christians are supposed to be obviously present in the world, like a light, and we're also to be subtly, quietly present, like a dash of salt in your food. Okay? Then he moves on and he says, now look, he says, I want you to know, uh, I, he gives us the Beatitudes. Actually, he gives them before the salt and the light. And he says here, and I, I won't read them all, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the land. Let's just stop there. You get the basic sense. The Greek word is makarios. I lost my microphone, sorry. Okay. The Greek word makarios, and I'll explain that in a minute, the, it, 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 it translates the Hebrew word ashrei, meaning happy or blessed. And the, it comes into the Latin as beatus, beatus. But be careful, happy doesn't mean, <laughs> I just heard a joke, <laughs> I'm feeling good. It, it's not a zippy-doo feeling of just sort of passing joy. It's a deep, that when the Lord says happy or blessed, he's talking about a deep, stable, serene and confident joy that comes to the human person who has met the Lord. Ashrei, macharios. 
Now, let's talk about the Greek because it's written in Greek. Makarios is a Greek word that even the pagan Greeks used to refer, and the, the pagan Greeks used this word to refer to the happiness of the gods unaffected by earthly situations. In other words, a stable, serene, confident joy. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you had a good day or a difficult day, whether you, you know, there's a deeper part of you that is stably, serenely, and confidently joyful, fulfilled, and happy because you've met the Lord. A lot of people think that happiness is due to external things. I got a nice house, I got a nice car, I got good kids, they're all behaving well today, now I'm happy. Kip it. Happiness is an inside job. Okay? You, know, you know a lot of rich people who got it all going on and they're not happy. And you know some poor people who are happy and everything in between. It's ultimately an inside job. It's about something deeper in your heart than mere external conditions. And that's what the Greek word makarios and the Hebrew word ashrei are trying to describe. A deep, serene, confident, stable joy. Okay, now, who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit, I don't, again, I have to go through this quickly, but the poor in spirit are those whose treasure is in heaven, who have met God, and this world is, it's not my oyster anymore. It's probably just, I, I need to get through it, must get through it, and, uh, but I don't need riches, wealth, fame. I've met the Lord. I'm poor to this world, but I'm rich in heaven. I don't care whether I make it in the stock market. You know, other things being equal, I'll make a go of it. I'll try to save up some money, help my kids make a go of it, get, a, get some kind of a foothold in this world. But this is not the point of my life. My point is God and the things waiting for me in heaven. And there comes upon me a poverty to this world, but an openness and a richness to the glory and the wonderful things of God. Blessed, indeed, are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In other words... When you've met God and the kingdom of heaven is really your oyster, the world is something to get through. You know? Other things being equal, you hope for a decent day rather than a bad day. But at the end of the day, God, whatever you want, I'm just glad I know you and I'm coming home to you one day. All right? Kind of quickly move through these. There's some, you know, there are different theories and you know, there's a lot of debates among scripture scholars, but at the end of the day, the, uh, we, we want to leave it at that. Now, blessed are those who mourn they'll be comforted. Well, who are those who mourn? Those who mourn are those who see the awful state of God's people. That so many people don't know God. That their oyster is in heaven. It's this world, which is foolishness. Because this world is passing away. Whatever this world does give you, it will take every bit of it back and assign you a stone-cold tomb. Are you clear on that? I made a million bucks! and you get the same stone-cold tomb as the guy who earned nothing. That's cruel. And yet so many people are basing their life on something that A, doesn't matter, and B, is passing away. And, when you, and you see that not only that, but people are confused. They're running after immorality, thinking it will make them happy. They're sexually confused. They're greedy. They're consumed by things. They're lost. They're hurt. They're weeping. They don't even know why they're weeping. And a person who really has met God and loves God and sees the glory of His kingdom looks at the condition of our world and weeps. So many people are lost. 
They don't know why they were made. And they weep. But it's not a weeping of depression. But it's a weeping that it's, it's, it, 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 it energizes you to pray and to work and to bring people to the Lord. See? Now, and, and so it says here, that the text says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's rescue the word comfort. It's not about pillows. The word comfort, its Latin root is confirmare, meaning to be strengthened. In other words, people who mourn, who see the awful state of God's people, start praying. They're strengthened. They start to pray. They start to preach. They start to teach. They go out. They meet people. They try to bring them to the Lord. Some of them say no, but some say yes. Somebody said to me, Father, why do you write so much? How do you find time to get out and give talks? I'll tell you why. First of all, I'm angry. I'm angry that so many people are lost and confused, but I'm also mourning. Anger and grief are very closely related. It motivates me. I preach, I teach. If only I can save some. And I look around a room tonight and I'm consoled, I'm comforted, I'm strengthened. I see that some are still hungry for God's Word. Most people today are not, sadly, but some still are. And if I can get you fed, you can turn and feed somebody else. I can reach other. We have people on the internet tonight. You can reach people. Whether you're down in Australia or over in Europe or just around the corner, but you can do it. And I'm comforted. I'm strengthened. See? Okay. So I'm trying to give you a quick flavor, but just by looking at a few of the Beatitudes, we don't have time to go through them all, right? We just don't. So I'll simply say here that blessed are the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Who are they? God is their treasure. Poor to this world, they don't care. Their treasure is God. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Likewise, we see that um, those who mourn, they'll be comforted. And I could go down the list, but let me just pick one other one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Look around the room tonight. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I tell you, brothers and sisters, I can't speak for you. I can certainly speak for myself. But I suspect I am not alone in the room tonight. When you finally meet God and you start to hear His truth and it starts to resonate because you were wired for truth. Every one of you in this room, you're wired for truth. As you're wired for truth, something starts to resonate when God's Word is proclaimed. Even by a feeble communicator like myself, there is still something that resonates in you. Because you were made for the truth. And you're hungry and you're thirsty for righteousness. And God says, oh, I'm going to feed you. And you start to read the Word and your mind lights up and you're excited and you're joyful. And you've got to run out and tell somebody because you're so filled with the abundance. You know, you've had a good meal, you had a quick nap, as you always have to have after a good meal. And then you go out and you tell somebody about the Lord, see? And so again, all of these are just ways of saying the Lord's trying to paint a picture. What happens to you and to me when He starts to live His life in us through grace? When He sends His Holy Spirit and He dwells in us like a temple? We start to change. Our joy is heaven and the things waiting for us. We do not detest anything of, of anyone in this world. We love them and we care about them. But our real goal is to, take, is to go to heaven and to bring as many people as we can with us. We mourn, but it's a, it's a fruitful mourning. It's a grief that gives us a zeal for souls. And we pray and we work and we preach and we teach. And even if they throw me in jail, I still keep preaching like Paul. See? And, and that's 
That beautiful vision of those who mourn. And we hunger and we thirst for righteousness. See? I was never like this as a teenager. Oh man, I want to hear Led Zeppelin, man. You know? Aerosmith! You know? But somewhere, someone was praying for me. My grandmother, my mother, a few others. And the Lord reached me. And He started to work in my life. And He changed me. See? I'm not, I'm not what I want to be, but I am not what I used to be. Hello? The Lord is changing me. And this is the picture that the Lord starts to paint. Now, then he goes through a series. He says, let me explain to you what it means to fulfill the law. Let me explain to you what starts to happen to you. Let me give you some examples, says the Lord. And he uses some, what we call the antitheses. And they're called antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount because he, they're all worded like this. You have heard that it was said to you, but I say to you. Okay, so that's why they're called antitheses. He states a known law or principle, most of them from the Ten Commandments, some from other sources. And he says, you've heard this, and you want to interpret it like a lawyer, and as a legal minimum. But remember, I'm giving you a new principle of love. And when you love me, and you love your neighbor, and you love yourself, you're not just going to meet the minimums. You're going to fulfill, you're going to fill the law full. And so every one of these things is saying, you heard a commandment, and you, that's the, here's the bottom line of it, but you're going to be soaring above it. All right. <clears throat> now, the first principle um, that he, he says here about fulfilling the law. Now, the first antithesis is on anger. Uh-oh, anger. <laughs> I know nobody in here ever gets angry. <clears throat> we want to see that the Lord is going to teach us about anger, but not any kind of an anger, a specific kind of anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger, there's such a thing as necessary anger, and there's such a thing as unrighteous anger. All right? And the Lord is talking about an unrighteous anger. But let's look here. He says, don't, you've heard that it was said, you shall not kill. Okay, first of all, let's stop for a minute. That's a commandment, right? That's number five, right? I got through the day, I haven't killed anybody yet. Hallelujah! On to the next commandment. <laughs> Oops, wait a minute, the Lord says, stop. You think that the commandment not to kill simply means you're not to end somebody's heartbeat. I got news for you. It's about more than that. I want you to fill the commandment full. Because what leads to murder? What brings people to a point where they so despise the life that I gave somebody else that they're willing to end it? What happens? Wrath, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentfulness, an attitude that says you might as well be dead for all I care. Now look, when you meet me and I start to live my life in you, that kind of anger is going to go away. So he says here, you've heard the commandment, you shall not kill, but whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. But Lord, we are, let's continue. Let's stay in the conversation with him now. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Racha, will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says to his brother, You fool, will be liable to fiery hell, fiery Gehenna. Now, let's just stop there. The Lord is talking about, he's not just talking about any kind of an anger. He gives two examples of the kind of anger he's talking about. It's the kind of an anger that says to somebody else, Racha. A word that is hard to translate, and also a word that is so hurtful that it shouldn't be translated. <laughs> it is kind of the equivalent in our culture of the N-word. 
It's a word with a long, the N-word I'm talking about. Think about that word for a moment. You all know what I mean by the N-word, right? I don't have to say it. I don't want to say it. Especially on this weekend, right? Listen. It's a word with a long history. It's a word that speaks terrible disrespect. It's a word that speaks of injustice. It's a word that speaks of dehumanizing. The N-word. It should not be spoken. It's so hurtful. I'm sad that some people think they can use that word, but it, it, it is a terribly hurtful word. It's dehumanizing, depersonalizing. And this is the equivalent. That's kind of what Raqqa was. Basically, Raqqa meant, look, I do not respect that you're a child of God. I don't respect there's any dignity about you. I don't respect, frankly, anything. In fact, you use up oxygen. Why don't you do us all a favor and just stop and get off the planet? Whether you live or die is not important to me. You are nothing to me. You have no dignity in my eyes. Now, you can start to see when you start to disrespect a person at that level, whether they live or die is of no importance to you. In fact, you wish they would do us all a favor and die. You might as well be dead for all I care. And that's what Raqqa is about. It's a deep, angry, bitter, vengeful anger. Okay? The Lord also then kind of by way... The Jewish people often used... Um, Poetry. Now, but for them, poetry wasn't in the sound. It was in the thought. So he goes and he says, in other words, you fool. And again, you have no wisdom in you. There is nothing of God in you. Nothing that I should respect. You are simply and totally out of God's favor. You have, there's nothing of God in you. I don't need to respect you. I, maybe won't, I won't actually go ahead and kill you, but I'm waiting for the day when someone will get around to it, and I will rejoice that day. See? So the Lord is talking about a specific kind of anger. Because there's other types of anger that are important for us. There are some things that we should be angry about. When you see injustice, you ought to be angry. Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever noticed that Jesus is angry a lot? I don't just mean when he cleansed the temple. Let me give you some quotes from Jesus. From, I'm quoting from John chapter 8. Unless you come to believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I have much to say about you, much to condemn you for. I say only that which my Father has given me to say. But I will tell you, I tell you, how are you to avoid being sentenced to hell? You must repent and come out of your sin, or you will die in your sins unless you come to believe that I am. Jesus said that stuff. Woe to you, scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs over whom people walk unawares. Oh, you claim to be pure, but you are no better than whitened sepulchers, full of filth inside, pretty on the outside, inside, full of dead men's bones. I'm quoting from the gentle gospel, Luke. <laughs> now, there's a time when you love somebody that a little anger is needed. When you're grieved at their hardness of heart. There are times when anger is appropriate. Now be careful, because we usually get it wrong. Jesus was sinless, and he knew how to use his anger authoritatively. But still, the point is that there is, an, there is a kind of a, uh, a proper understanding of anger. Uh, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, that we didn't cover, but basically the Greek word there, prootes, uh, is, is a virtue the, 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 we translate it into English meekness, but what it means is it's the proper middle ground between too much anger 
and not enough anger. There are some things, my brothers and sisters, you need to be angry about. But not a throwing the furniture, venting, cursing kind of anger, but an anger that's productive, that says, you know, I'm going to do something about it. Sometimes you've got to get angry about something to get something done about it. Are you praying with me? So the Lord isn't condemning all anger, but he's, re- he's condemning wrathful, hateful, bitter anger. And the Lord says, now listen, you better watch out, because that stuff can land you in hell. But the Lord isn't just forbidding the anger, he's trying to say, do you understand? The picture that he's painting is that when I start to live my life in you, you're not going to have that kind of anger for people. Even your enemy, you're going to start to love them, You'll come to, not approval of what they do, but understanding of their weakness and their struggles, and you'll be more patient and you'll work with them. See, But raka and all that stuff, that's going to go out of your vocabulary. It's not going to be going on in your heart because you've met me, you've invited me into your life, I'm starting to live my life through my Holy Spirit in your heart, and by grace, I'm beginning to change your heart. And that kind of anger is going to go away. Now, I don't have time to deal with the whole second half, but so serious as he says, look, if you come to Mass, leave your gift and go first be reconciled. If you've got that kind of stuff going on with somebody, you go first and be reconciled, then come back. Now, you hear that? Come back, okay? And then offer your gift. You know? God says, I'm not going to listen to you and your prayers if you've got that kind of stuff going on in your heart. You can't come before me and say, Lord, help me, help me, Lord. And you, can, you say, this guy over here, I wish he were dead. That's not... See, you need to work through that. And I want to work through it with you, and I will help you. But I'm painting a picture for you that the transformed human person is increasingly set free from this kind of stuff. All right, let's move on. You've heard that you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we'll look at the second half in a minute, but now this leads us to some questions, I know. What does it mean to look with lust? Okay. It, well, let's just say what it isn't, first of all. It isn't just to say, well, that, that woman is beautiful. Uh, it isn't to find some attraction, necessarily. But rather, what lust is, is that when I move beyond simply admiring the beauty of another, and I start to think of them in selfish terms, I start to abuse them. I, we might, we, it might be what we call today sexually fantasizing about somebody, Okay. And that's the vision of of what we mean by lust. We all have occasionally some thoughts that pop into our mind that are unholy and impure, and we dismiss them. Now, that's just your crazy imagination. St. Teresa of Avila mentioned about her imagination. She said, I think of my imagination like a mad woman in the cellar, calling through the door all kinds of crazy things. Uh, And the main thing is to just basically ignore her, okay? And our minds are like that. It's just not about sexuality, but it's about any dumb... How many dumb thoughts occur to you all throughout the day? Stupid, dumb, vain, just dopey thoughts, including some impure thoughts, you know? I mean, I meet 10,000 times a day, right? Father, is that really... (laughs) You know, okay. You know, I got this little thing that counts my steps, you know? 10,000 steps, you know, they add up pretty quick, right? All right. But again... Um, the vision is that, uh, we, we, so it's not simply that we're tempted, you know, a thought occurs to us and we dismiss it. That's not lust. But lust starts to occur and we say, hmm, yeah. And we start to think about in that person and being with them in an inappropriate way sexually. That's, that's lust. And the Lord says, now look, when I start to live my life in you, see, that's going to start to go away. Okay? You're not going to use people like that. 
You're, you're, you're going to reverence sexuality for the gift that it is. You're going to reverence marriage and family. And you're not going to be out there looking at porn. And you're not going to be out there fantasizing all day long and just sort of, dro- pardon the expression, but drooling. Now, he also says it's, it's more than just a simple question of lust. But, you know, in a way, he's sort of painting even a bigger picture. He says, do you understand? You begin to have authority over your thought life. Isn't that a beautiful gift? And you start to have authority over your thought life. And you're quick to dismiss dumb things and unhelpful things and hateful things and lustful things. You, you, and, and, and quick rash judgments where we jump to conclusions and we say, oh, there I go again. And you start to take authority over that. And your mind begins to become yours, not the devil's. You know, there's a great battle going on right now in your mind. And the devil wants access. And he gets it pretty easily if we let him. And so again, the Lord is saying, when I start to live my life in you, I'm trying to paint a picture for you. You're going to have authority over your thought life, including sexuality. And you're going to have authority over your sexuality. And you're not going to use it sinfully. You're going to allow it to direct you to a particular person, your spouse, or to get married. And, or if you're celibate, you're going to direct it to a love for the church, a love for the community. But you're not going to reduce people to your personal plaything for your little fantasies. Okay? Now he goes on to say here, now look, he says, I'm serious about this. You know, this could be a very serious matter in your life. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, of course, he's using what we call hyperbole. And we're going to need to look at this as we go through the sermon and to, to the degree we can get through it here. But a lot of hyperbole is used, which it, it means exaggeration. But it doesn't mean ignore the point. It means though, that he's trying to emphasize something. He's not literally saying cut off your hand or your foot or you pluck out your eye. But he's saying, do you understand that this kind of sinfulness, lust, and all kinds of rash and angry and hateful thoughts from the previous antitheses, they can go to work in you and they can so harden your heart and mess with your mind that you'll just go to hell. You see, and so he's saying, do you understand that it's more serious to sin in this way than to lose your hand or your eye or your foot? Now, you know, we don't think like that today. If you were to lose your hand or your eye or your foot today, you'd hate this day for the rest of your life. You say, that day, man, I remember that day. Gosh, what an awful day. I lost my hand. I lost my foot. Terrible accident. Why don't we think that way about our sin? But we don't. So don't miss, even though it's a hyperbole, he's not literally telling you to cut off your hand or your foot or pluck out your eye, but he's saying, take these things more seriously. They can really ruin you. How many people do you know? I'm not going to ask for any show of hands here too, but how many people in this room maybe have been ruined by lust or anger? Our lives can be very wrecked quickly and ruined with lust, with anger, with hatefulness. Are you praying with me? The Lord says, look, I didn't die on the cross so that you can be dominated by lust or by anger or wrath or any of that. I died on the cross to set you free. And I'm trying to paint a picture for you here. It's not just, don't do this. Okay, I'll try not to do it. Try not to do it. Out of my own flesh power. Ten seconds later, you're back in the soup. I know what the Lord is doing. He's trying to say, let my grace go to work in your life. And you'll start to see some of this anger going away. You'll start to see some of this lust cooling. It may take time, but it goes to work. All right, continuing to move on. I wish I could spend more time on each, but can't. Whoever divorces his wife should give her a bill of divorce. That's the rule. If 
By gosh, if you're going to divorce your wife, you make sure you fill out the paperwork. Yes, indeed. Now, Moses permitted divorce. Now, I think some of you were in the course with me. We, we talked about this for a half a minute, but um, the old rabbis had a theory, you know, because the Mosaic law was pretty strict. And all of a sudden, you come to marriage, and a guy can divorce his wife for any reason. Just make sure you fill out the paperwork. Now, the idea of filling out the paperwork was you didn't just kick her out the front door. You had to go to the elders of the community, state the reason. You know, so, in other words, there was some communal dimension or understanding. You didn't just you know, arbitrarily kick your wife out the door. Uh, you had to answer to people. All right? So you, you see, there's more than just filling out forms. All right. But on the other hand, they did generally permit divorce. Quote, for any reason whatsoever. Now why? The rabbis had a theory. Moses said, hey, they, he says, these men I've got with me in the desert, they're a rough crowd. Now if I says to them, boys, you've got to stay married till death do you part. And they says to me, you mean I've got to stay married till one of us is dead? <laughs> Fine, I can arrange that. <laughs> so in order to present or prevent a worse crime, namely homicide, he prevented a lesser evil, divorce. Now that's hard-hearted. And the, and the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 19, Moses permitted you this because you have hard hearts. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So, in other words, I'm giving you now a richer... I want you to fulfill the law that God originally gave, that a man should cling to his wife, cling to her, work through differences. Honey, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> and the Lord says, I'm giving you a new heart. I'm living my life in you. I'm giving you grace and mercy. I didn't die on the cross so that you could get angry with your wife and kick her out the door. I died on the cross so that you could love me, love yourself, and love your wife. Really love her with a tender love. And you know, wives and husbands have a lot to endure from each other. Marriage is hard. Two sinners get married. Hello? Now, if you are married, would you please say, my marriage is not perfect because I am in it. Start there. Work your stuff. You know, you're pretty hard to live with too. You know that. Okay. Father, you don't understand. You, you just listen to my story. I'm talking generally. I'm not here to judge every individual case. I'm just going to say to you, I know it's not always 50-50. I get that. But at the end of the day, other things being equal, the Lord Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for us so that we could all be getting in and out of marriages, divorcing, kicking each other to the door, refusing to reconcile and forgive, sitting there being abused and all that kind of stuff, and the other spouse just getting away. He didn't die for any of that. He died to heal us so that we can say, look, I don't, I don't want to divorce you. I love you. I love you. Why would I want to divorce you? The Lord is in my heart. He's in your heart. Jesus in me loves Jesus in you. See, that's the vision. He's painting a picture. He's not just saying, don't do something. He's saying, here's the reality that I'm summoning you to. That I'm, I've given you a new life. And here's what it looks like. Someone who doesn't give way to terrifying and awful anger. Someone who's not giving way to lust and and." And all of that. And likewise, someone who's not just giving way to vengeful and wrathful hatefulness toward a wife or a husband, just hauling them to court and divorcing them, saying, I'm done with you. Aren't you glad God isn't done with you? What if God did that to us? Are you praying with me? All right. I know it's hard. <laughs> Priesthood is hard. Life is hard. So he goes on to say that. So again, he's not just saying, don't do something. He's trying to paint a picture of a transformed human person who actually loves his wife. Hello? 
Believe it or not, you can actually love your wife. You've heard that it was said to your ancestors, don't take a false oath, make good to the Lord in all that you vow. I say to you, don't swear at all, not by heaven. And, and so, now, let's, let's get back to hyperbole for a minute. When the Lord said, don't swear at all, he's using a little bit of hyperbole here. You ever, um, um, you ever been talking to somebody and you want them to do something and they're kind of resisting and you say, all right, just skip it. Do you really mean it literally? You don't really want them just to skip it. You just say, let's just drop it for now. Right? But you, you don't want them to skip it because you wouldn't have had a debate about it. But, so there's a kind of that in what Jesus is saying. He's not saying never swear an oath. He himself was put under oath by the high priest. Right? I adjure you. I put you under oath. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus was put, he, he swore. He, under oath, he swore. And he said, I am. And you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay? So he's not saying never, ever take an oath. We all have to sometimes take oaths of office or go into courtrooms and so on. But the Lord is saying, would you please understand something? That when I start to live my life in you, you're not just going to tell the truth because somebody put you under oath. You're going to tell the truth because I live in you and I'm the truth. And you're going to speak the truth and you're going to speak it in love, but you're going to speak it. And you're not going to lie. You don't want to lie. And you're not just going, and, and further, you're not going to hide the truth. Hello, fellow Catholics. For 50, 60, 70, 80 years now, we've been trying to hide the truth under a bushel basket. How's that working for us? Hmm? Why is that world such darkness out there? Why is that world in such a mess? We're afraid to speak the truth. And the Lord is saying, when I start to live my life in you, you're going to be a man or a woman of the truth. You're going to say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. And you're not going to pretend that there's some third way. Well, let's just all try to get along. You're not going to gainsay the truth. You're not going to water it down. You're going to say it with love, but you're going to say it. See? You're going to be a man or a woman dedicated to the truth. Got to keep moving. You've heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Okay. I say to you, offer no resistance to one who is evil. When someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn it off from the other as well. If someone wants to go to law of your tunic, hand him your cloak as well. Should someone press you into service for one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks of you. Don't turn your back on the borrower. Now look. Again, you want to interpret this absolutely and literally, but remember, there is some hyperbole here. Now remember, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Lord is saying fundamentally, look, when, you, when I'm living my life in you, you're not going to need to have revenge for everything. You're not going to, you've been slighted, so I'm going to slight you back. Now, the idea of being struck on the cheek now, let's be careful about this, is not a, an act of physical attack. That he, You understand, do you, that being struck on the cheek isn't really, a, oh, I'm being threatened physically, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. That's not what it means. It means to be, it's an indignity. To be slapped on the cheek is an indignity. You'll probably survive physically, won't you? What's going on? It's an act of indignity. It's an attack on your dignity. And the Lord says, would you please stop having such big egos and worrying about, ooh, somebody said something about me, so I've got to say something back, tit for tat. Ooh, you said this, I'm going to say that. The Lord is saying, would you please let some of the cycle of violence and, and, and ridicule stop with you? Take the hit and don't return it. Now, is that always going to be true? No, and we'll see why in a minute. But do you see the basic principle? Don't get so upset that someone attacked your dignity. You know, Sometimes someone got praise and I didn't. We get very, we're very thin-skinned very easily. And the Lord is first of all saying to us, when I start to live my life in you, you're not going to be so thin-skinned. Okay? You're not. You're going 
to be deeply rooted in the love that I have for you. And you'll be less concerned and obsessed with what other people think and whether they praised you or didn't. Whether you got the credit or somebody else didn't get the credit. You know, whether someone says something to you that's mean or uh, unkind and, or whether they didn't. You, you're not, not going to sweat that stuff. All right. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never a time to defend yourself against charges. So let's go to the Lord. He's on trial. I just alluded to this event. And the high priest puts him under oath. And that's an important part of the context. He's under oath now. He says, I adjure you. I put you under oath, said the high priest, who had a right to do that. Jesus is on trial before the high I put you now under oath, and I say to you, answer me. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments he thought of a, he, he was hearing a blasphemy, Christ making himself God's equal, coming on the clouds, and he's blaspheming. And the slave of the high priest struck Jesus on the cheek. Uh-oh, I did it again. Lost my microphone here. The slave of the high priest struck Jesus on the cheek. Did he turn the other cheek? What did he do? Anyone remember? Did he turn the other cheek? He did not. He said to that slave, he said, if, you, if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Doesn't sound like turning the other cheek. Uh, Jesus, you're, you're, you're mis- you, you yourself said. Why was it important for him to defend himself and not just turn the other cheek? Because of you and me. You know, your reputation isn't important just for your own sake, but sometimes for the sake of others. If you're a parent and somebody attacks your reputation falsely, there may be a time for you to have to defend yourself because otherwise your kids lose heart. Other people lose heart. You might lose your job your livelihood, and your kids are depending on that. So there does come a time when for not just our own sake, but for the sake of others, that we should defend our reputation against serious attack, not just dumb little, oh, you're just a big jerk. You know, let, let that go. But if somebody says, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, Father Pope, oh, you think Father Pope's so great. I got news for you. He's stealing from the parish, and he's, he's with a woman in the parish. Now, if I just let that go and say, well, you know, I'm no, I've got to vigorously defend and say, my, 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 my fellow people, that is not true. I don't want them to lose heart. I don't want them to become cynical about the church. What, is being, what I'm being charged with is incorrect, it is wrong, it is erroneous, and I fundamentally deny the charges. Okay, so there comes a time when we need to defend our reputation. Other times, where it's not about our reputation, it's just about our dignity and stuff. And the Lord says, let that go. Okay? And again, the picture he's painting is when I am starting to live my life in you, you're not going to be obsessed with what other people think of you, whether they praise you or don't, and things like that. And likewise, he gives some other examples. You know, if somebody wants to borrow from you, you're not that attached to money. Here, have a few bucks. It's my money. I earned for it. You can't have my money. That's, the Lord says, you're not going to have that attitude when I'm living my life, and you're going to be generous. Other things being equal, right? Or when somebody wants to uh, press you into service, Oh, I'm busy, I'm too busy. Why are you asking me? Ask somebody else. You know, the Lord's going to say, generally speaking, when I'm living my life in you, you're going to be generous with your time, with your talent, with your treasure. You're going to want to help people. See? So do you, get the, you see the picture that he's painting here? All right. Well, we haven't gotten too far. We're almost to the end of five, but <laughs> I, I have to say, well, just to kind of move on here quickly, into chapter six for a few minutes, and then I have to start wrapping up. I got about, what, maybe five more minutes? Or Okay. But... Chapter 6 is about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. 
And you, you have, um, you've heard, uh, well, basically that all three of them are done in the same way. When you give alms, well, the, the basic principle is take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that other people may see them. That's the key to chapter 6. Take care not to live lives, holy lives, or, or to do good deeds just so that others will go, oh, wow, let's put your name on the, blast, on the brass plaque. Woo, you're great. Look at you. If you're doing it for that, the Lord says, that's not really what I'm about. Now, again, the Lord does want our good deeds to shine forth so that others will give praise to God, but it's not about us, right? So the Lord is saying, be careful, here's the principle, not to perform righteous deeds in order that other people may see them in order that other people may see them. Let me say that one more time. In order that other people may see. Your motive, your reason for doing it is, I want people to praise me. Now, in, in Jewish culture, unlike our secular culture, people got a lot of credit when they were noted to be fasting or praying or giving alms. Now, in our culture, maybe giving alms will get you some praise. Praying and fasting. What an idiot, man. <laughs> you go to church? You still go to church? But in that culture, to be seen praying would earn you praise. So they would widen their phylacteries, their big prayer shawls with big tassels and put them on, and very ostentatious praying. Even today, when you go to the, the, to, the, to the Western Wall, you see that there's a Jewish practice of praying, you know, like, you know, very ostentatious, you know. And I'm not saying they're all looking for praise, but I'm just saying that's the Jewish way. Or fasting, you dishevel your hair, you smudge your face up, you say, ooh, he's fasting, look, ooh, see. And again, almsgiving, blowing a trumpet, now, you know, again, the Lord is just using a figure here. He doesn't mean... He basically said, look, don't hire the, the, don't, don't hire, don't hire the band when you write the check. You know, just do it quietly, okay? But again, the idea is, ooh, pray, oh, you know, see? Now, he's saying be careful, but let's go deeper for a minute. The Lord is talking about a problem in chapter 6, in the whole of chapter 6, where he uses prayer, fasting, and almsgiving as a kind of an illustration of a human problem that's very poignant, it's very sad, and it bespeaks a person who has not really met God. And the problem is hypocrisy. Now you see, we have to rescue the word because the Lord is using the word in a richer sense than most of us who speak English today. For most of us in English today, the word hypocrisy refers to someone who says one thing and does another. So someone who's inconsistent. They say they believe or they think this, and then they act in a way that's contrary. Now, that is a part of hypocrisy, but it's only a small part of it. The real problem with hypocrisy is much deeper, much sadder, and very poignant. So let's talk about it. But let me just give you the basic formula. The Lord says basically in, in, the, in these, uh, in the, in these uh, texts that talk about um, you know, um, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, he simply says, look, he says, um, here, let's see here. Let's just read one of them for you, the first one. When you give alms, don't blow a trumpet like the hypocrites. See that word? He uses the word hypocrite. That's why I'm talking to you about hypocrisy. When you give alms, don't blow the trumpets before you like a hypocrite. Um, to win the praise of others. But I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your almsgiving may be secret. And your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now both those words, hypocrisy is the problem, and the solution is your heavenly Father. So let's talk about hypocrisy. What does Jesus mean by hypocrisy? Hypocrisy. 
Here's what he means. Hypocrisy is the very sad state of the human person who has been reduced to becoming an actor on a stage desperately seeking applause because he doesn't know the Father. And that's a lot of moving parts here. Let's say it again. Hypocrisy is the sad state of the human person who is reduced to an actor on a stage desperate for applause because he doesn't know God. So if you can imagine, if you might, a solitary actor on a stage up there dancing or telling jokes and just desperate for people to, to applaud. Do they like me? Do they like me? See? And desperate. Desperate. It's a very sad condition, and sadly, a lot of us struggle with it. But notice, why is he in that condition? Because he doesn't know the Father. To him, God is a stranger up there. He might reward me, whoever he is. All I know is that you all are down here, and I need money, and I need, I need access, I need power, I need approval, I need applause in order to make a way in life. I'm desperate. Do you like me tonight? Are, are you happy? And, and, and so a person can fall into a terrible condition where their whole life becomes pleasing other human beings. Why? Because they've never met God. God is a stranger. And that's hypocrisy. Now, where does the problem of inconsistency come in? So, in other words, we do know that there is an attitude of a hypocrite will say one thing and do another. Here's the problem. The audience changes. So, in audience A, you're, la, 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 I'm this, I'm that, la, la, la. And audience B, different crowd. Oop, and all of a sudden, you're a different person. Because your job is to please them, not to be who you are before God. Does this make sense to you? Kind of, kind of, kind of. I've seen some looks. You see, this is different than our notion of hypocrisy, isn't it? See? We, we, we tend to ridicule hypocrites. We, we, if, you, if, this, if you call somebody a hypocrite or you're called a hypocrite and the charge sticks, it's pretty embarrassing. Caught. But here is a deeper root of the problem. I'm desperate for your approval, so I change. You want me to dance a jig? I'll dance a jig. You want me to sing a dirge? I'll sing a dirge. Whatever you want, I'll do it. Because I'm desperate. And why am I desperate? Because I don't know God. Now the Lord has a simple solution for us. The fear of the Lord. If you fear me, now fear doesn't mean cringing fear. It means deep love, respect, reverence. If you have that in your life, if I'm really the one you want to please, That's a pretty simple job. You're just pleasing one person, right? You're pleasing God, right? But if you don't fear the Lord, you're going to fear 10,000 times 10,000 other people. Are you praying with me? And this is the problem of hypocrisy. And it's at the root of an awful lot of sins that we commit. Because in order to please other human beings, we are often willing to sin, to lie, to not reveal or speak the truth, We're desperate for applause, for approval. By the way, just so you know the root here, the Greek word hypokritos means actor. That's why I use the image of an actor. The Greek word for for actor is hypokritos. So let's go down to the theater and watch the hypocrites. (laughs) But in Greek, it just meant actors. And so the Lord is saying, stop giving alms, blowing a trumpet when you give alms, like the actors who are just looking, they're like an actor on a stage, looking for applause. 
And that's how they live their life. They don't really care for God. They don't even know Him. They're just walking around on a stage trying to get applause. If it, if it takes almsgiving, they'll give alms. If it takes fasting, they'll fast. If it takes prayer, they'll, they'll pray. They'll even do acts directed to God, but they'll do them for human reasons because they are that desperate and that lost. Why are they that desperate and that lost? Because they don't know the Father. So what's the solution? Again, just to follow again the, the Lord's logic here. When you give alms, don't blow a trumpet like the actors, like the hypocrites do. They're just acting. They don't really love God. They want your applause. They want to win the praise of men. But I say to you, they've received their reward. You want applause? You got it. Paid in full. We're done here. Don't expect God to praise you on the day of judgment. You wanted applause from men. You got it. You're, you're paid in full. Okay. Now, they've received their reward. But when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your almsgiving will be secret. And your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, that's the solution to hypocrisy. Your heavenly Father. Do you know Him? Or is He a stranger up there? Hmm? Have you ever really met Jesus? Do you know His Father? Have you experienced the Holy Spirit dwelling with you? Or is this all theories? Is God some stranger up there? Somehow you know He loves you because you read it in a book. Now, getting back to our picture... Because there's a lot of morality here, right? The Lord is saying, don't do all this. But what He really is saying is, when I begin to live my life in you by grace, you will begin to love my Father. You will, be, you will feel His tender love for you. You will feel also His necessary rebukes and punishments. But you'll know they're given to you in love. But you will know my Father. Like I know my Father. And when you start to know the Father, you're not going to be obsessed any longer with the applause of men. You're not going to be like that lonely actor, that hypocrite, hypocritas, that actor up on a stage, desperate for the crowd's approval, doing whatever it takes, even if it means sinning. You're not going to do that because I'm living my life in you and your life is changing and your life is about different things. Are you following this? Because I've got to wrap it up now. I can't get into chapter 7. But chapter 6 does have the Our Father. By the way, we did a course on the Our Father, and if some of you didn't see it, you can get it online. So the Our Father, we've already carved out and done that part. Uh, um, we've analyzed his... He's trying to teach us. He says, look, get in touch with your Father. And when you pray, say, Father. Father, your name is holy. I love you. I praise you. I thank you. Oh, Father, take care of me. Teach me your will. Teach me, Father. I love you. I love you, Daddy God. I love you, Abba. I love you. Teach me. Take care of me. Give all of us our daily bread. Take care not just of me, but others. And Lord, show me my sins so I can repent of them and be free of them and just be with you forever. I love you, Daddy God. I love you. See? That's the picture he's trying to paint. Somebody who really knows and loves the Father. That is the life that Jesus Christ died to give you. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for mere human applause. Don't settle for anything, because that applause comes at a price. Okay. The Lord wants us to know Him so that it, and, and to fear Him in the proper sense of that word. Have a holy reverence. To hold Him in awe. And then we don't worry about what the crowd thinks. 
Otherwise, if we don't do that, we are reduced to being an actor, desperate on a stage for applause, a hypocrite. Okay? And the Lord wants to save you from that. And he's painting a picture here. It's not just don't do this, it's accept this life and you won't do this. Are you praying with me? All right, so I'm done. I want to say this, that again, just to summarize, the whole moral tradition of the New Testament through the fathers of the church all the way up to and including St. Thomas and scholasticism all had this emphasis that Jesus Christ died to give us a new life. We access that life through a relationship with Him and in that relationship we begin to change and our life starts to look differently. And the Lord is trying to give us some pictures, some snapshots of what that's like. Do you follow? So, a great and a glorious vision of what the Lord gives. Now, you say, but how can a relationship change me? Listen, just to put a bow on it. You've all met people in your life. And having met them, your life was never the same. Changed forever. It might have been the person you married. But even before that, maybe you met a teacher who inspired you. Who showed you that you had a gift for math. Or a gift for writing. That's where I, my, my high school, uh, my high school uh, literary, or literature teacher inspired me. He says, you've got a gift for writing. I do? And my whole life has changed. You know, I can, I just, I'm always writing. <laughs> so, but um, you see the vision? You meet people, human beings, just human beings, and your life can be changed forever, for better or for worse. If that's the case with human beings, how much more so with God? You meet Jesus Christ. I mean, really meet Him. Not just read about Him in the pages of a book, but I mean, really meet Him in your prayer. Meet Him as you start to hear His voice in your heart and getting in touch through the liturgy. He puts on robes every day, every Sunday, and He ministers to you. You say, I'm so grateful. And you start to meet Him and know Him. Not just know about Him. Your life will change. And your life will start to look and sound and be differently based on these kinds of pictures that the Lord is painting. Okay, see how different that is in follow the rules or else. Okay, now, do follow the rules. But remember, the rules are for the weak. If you've met Jesus Christ and you love Him and you love the Father, you're going to be going above the rules. You're not just going to be not killing people. You're going to actually not be angry with them and you're going to love your enemy. Hello? You're not just going to not divorce. You're actually going to love your spouse. You're not actually going to, you know, just go out. You're not actually going to stop fornicating. You're actually going to start to live with purity. And you're going to find, you're going to, you're going to direct your sexual energies to beautiful, creative ends. You see, so it's very, it's a healing that the Lord is offering us. All right, well, I'll, I'll end. Maybe there's time for a break and then some questions. And bless you for your patience. Thank you. <clears throat> Father, I was just curious if you can talk about what you would have said for uh, uh, Matthew seven twenty one to twenty three. Uh, uh, yeah, it was it was the one that was basically talking about you know like Lord, Lord, you know, uh, uh, and then I I I depart. I didn't even know you, you know. Uh, on, uh, oh yeah, yeah, the basic judgment scenes and so on, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, the, the Lord is, um, in some ways, in this Sermon on the Mount, railing against what we might call minimalism, right? Which is, hey, look, I, you know, there's a tendency that we have if we're not careful to buy God off or to think we can. Look, Lord, I went to Mass on Sundays, shakaroni. I paid a little bit in the collection plate, shakaroni. 
I, you know, I, do, I, I, did, I did a few nice things for the poor, checkaroni. Now, I'm through with you. Leave me alone. I fulfilled, the, I fulfilled the requirements. Leave me alone. See? And there's a tendency also at the moral level to think that I can observe certain things and therefore ignore other things. So a person might think, well, I'm generous with the poor, so I don't have to look at the fact that I'm living with my girlfriend. You don't buy God off that way, right? Or, uh, look, um, <clears throat> um, I am sexually poor. I don't even masturbate. So look, look at me, but you don't want to look at your anger and how you drive your employees and are hard to live with and your wife and children are going crazy. But by gosh, I'm a hero because I don't look at porn and I haven't masturbated. Well, you see what I'm saying? You can't buy God off that way. And so at some level, he's warning all of us to avoid minimalism. And he says, a lot of people are going to say that day, Lord, Lord. And he says, look, not everyone who says Lord, Lord is going to inherit the kingdom, but those who, who do the will of my Father. Now, again, not in a reductionist, moralistic, rules-based way, but those who really let us into their life so that we can work with them and transform them and make them our own dear children in faith. Um, so again, uh, he also warns, there's a classic line in that passage, look, the, the road to damnation is wide and many follow it, and the road to salvation is narrow, and how few there are who find it. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what most people think today. I mean, me and Ralph Martin are brothers in arms on that question, you know, fighting against universalism. The idea that almost everybody, except maybe for a really few bad people like Hitler and Stalin, uh, are going to go to heaven. And, and the Bible just doesn't teach that. And the sad reason it doesn't teach that, I don't have time to go through soteriology with you, but the honest truth is there's a lot of people that constitute their life in a way that they don't really want what heaven is. What is heaven? Heaven isn't just your personal golf course or your personal playground that, you know, that you've personally designed. Heaven is the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. And what is that? It's some of the stuff we looked at. It's, it's people who love their neighbor, even love their enemy, who are forgiven. People who, uh, the kingdom of God is about forgiveness, it's about love, it's about mercy, it's about justice, it's about God at the center, not me. It's about His truth, not my opinions. It's about liturgy and praise, it's about uh, chastity, it's, and so on. And you can see that a lot of those things on the list are things that people, a lot of people in our culture today don't want a thing to do with. And why does he call it the narrow way? Because it's the way of the cross. And people don't like the cross, including some of us. Too many Christians are embarrassed by the cross. We're embarrassed to call people to make sacrifices. Embarrassed to tell them. It's hard to turn away from sin. See, sin is front-loaded. The pleasure is front-loaded, right? You get your, all your pleasure now, and then comes the bill later. But they don't tell you that part. You get your pleasure now, then comes the STD. You get your pleasure now, then comes the divorce papers and the alimony payments. You get your pleasure now, and then comes the, uh, uh, you know, the, you vent your anger and you feel better, and then come the lawsuits. And you, so you see, uh, sin always makes promises for pleasure, and it delivers the pleasure immediately, and the bill comes later. The way of the cross says, very often the difficulties, the sacrifices will come first, and the payoff comes later. And people don't like that today, or any, any day. And so... Narrow way, wide way, judgment. But it's all rooted still finally in this same picture. The Lord's painting a picture for us that, look, I've died to give you a certain life. Receive it from me. See? And you will inherit happiness, glory. You'll inherit that. It, reject it, and you're going to be miserable for eternity. And that's really the answer. We judge, we condemn ourselves. Monsignor, we have a uh, question coming in online from Marion McLaughlin. Can you explain a little bit more Matthew 5.13? You are the salt of the earth. 
And of course, Jesus goes on to say, if salt loses its taste, what good is it to be, but to be trodden underfoot? Salt is a... Um, um, most people today in our culture think of salt as something that gives you high blood pressure. But salt is, first of all, necessary, it's useful, it had a lot of different uses, and it was so valuable that people often used it, they were paid in salt. That's where we get the word salary and so on. Sal is the word for salt, salary is salt money, you know, it's, uh, and it it was a very valuable, now there are a number of things, of course, obviously salt adds flavor to life, it brings out the flavor, Hmm? Um, it, it, it's never, it adds spice, and so when the Lord says, you're the salt of the earth, he's saying, you bring out the goodness in the things of this world, if you're, if you're salt. You make life more palatable, more tasty, more savory, okay? Um, you're a spice. You're spice for the world. You know, the old, there's a Belloc who wrote, you know, in Catholic countries, the sun does shine, and there is music and good red wine. I have white wine here, but red wine. And at least I have always thought it so benedicamus domino. So there's a, there, the, the Christians are to add a flavor and a spice to life. And good Christian cultures, especially Catholic Christian culture, has often added flavor. Words like carnival and festival and so on come to mind. Holy days, we call them, we mispronounce it today, we call them holidays. But they all began as holy days. Carnival means bye-bye to meat. Bye-bye meat. So it was basically, you know, great festivals that were held at the, before Lent kicked in. And people had carnival. They said bye-bye, carni, carnis, meat, bye-bye, vale, vale. So you'd have carnival. So words like these even come into our language. Things that, where there's zest, there's festivals, there's flavor and so on. Festival from the Latin festivus, a feast, a feast day on the church's calendar. So you get the idea. That's one sense of salt. Another sense of salt is that salt purifies. Um, if you, we don't like the idea of rubbing salt in our wound, but in the, in the old days when they didn't have a lot of antiseptics and stuff, you would rub salt. You would cauterize a wound. You would uh, purify it. You would kill bacteria. So salt purifies. Likewise, we, uh, we, salt um, also uh, helps uh, re- remove putrefaction. So before refrigeration, people would salt their meats. They would store them in salty uh, places and, uh, uh, and so on. Did you ever have a Smithfield ham? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Probably illegal today <laughs> with, all these, you know, um, with all these food police running around, all the salt content. But, you know, the idea was, you know, you could leave a Smithfield ham on your counter and come back three years later and it's just still sitting there, you know. <laughs> but anyway, the idea is that salt helps to stave off uh, putrefaction or, or decay. And so in all these ways, you can even throw salt in the cracks of a sidewalk and kill weeds, you know. So salt had a lot of uses. It was very valuable. But if salt went flat, it was good for nothing but to be used as pavement. Now, how does salt go flat? Most of us don't have a lot of experience because most of the salt we get today is fairly pure. But most of the salt in the ancient world was taken and evaporated from from seabeds like the Dead Sea or other places. And it had a lot of other minerals mixed in with it. Um, And because of that, over time, Salt could, um, those other minerals would begin to break down the other, the, 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 the sodium and the, and the chloride, the NaCl, and it would become flat and bitter, and you know, it began to taste pretty bad because those other minerals were interacting with what we call salt. And so over time, salt could go flat, and it was good for nothing at that point but to be thrown out in the road. And as I say, they used it in the roads to kill weeds, to kill 
uh, things growing and also to, well, let's just say there are animal droppings and things. You would just throw it over the animal droppings and kill bacteria and so on. So I hope that helps a little. That's just a real quick and dirty, but uh, it's, uh, what do you mean by salt? Yeah, okay, the question here. Uh, Monsignor, you said rightly so that people are afraid uh, to be talking about the cross and, and things like that, particularly at Lent. Uh, so my question is, we know we have our flaws and we know we have Lent for a reason. And, and when people will say to us, boy, you know, you're just being a hypocrite because you're, try you're telling me that I need to be good and you're not perfect yourself. How, how do we respond to that? Well, first of all, again, that's a misuse of the word hypocrisy, isn't it? We, I tried to show that to you. Hypocrisy is a much more um, nuanced and vivid description of a deep human problem. We've all got it. There isn't a human being on this planet who doesn't have some inconsistencies, who has ideals that they don't perfectly live. You know, there's always room in the church for one more hypocrite, okay? <laughs> just, just come join us, you know? Um, by the way, the, you know, the Lord was found in some pretty strange company, wasn't he? The scribes and the Pharisees had a legalistic notion of righteousness. They kept 613 rules. Again, kind of check off the boxes, buy God off kind of mentality. And they said, well, we're righteous. Other people aren't. Well, that's just foolishness. At the end of the day, um, all of us struggle. And Jesus kept company with people that they thought of as sinners. Jesus was found in the company of sinners. And so it makes sense. The church is like a hospital. Uh, the church, in a hospital, you'll find doctors, you'll find healing, you'll find medicine. You're also going to find pus, disease, crying out in pain, you know, etc., sickness, illness. So I think that the church is like a hospital in that sense. And so you're going to find in the church saints and sinners all together. And, um, and ideally moving in the right direction, but you see this is the vision. So I think that, um, but we do need to keep holding up the cross. When I say... Uh, you mentioned the cross, and so the idea is that too many Christians are embarrassed by the cross. I don't have time to give you every possible example, but just take a simple thing that's in the news now, physician-assisted suicide. Now, there's an awful lot of Catholics sitting in the pew, and I hope not in this room, but I think, that's just fine, you know, when people are miserable, why should I tell them to go on suffering, and isn't it a terrible thing? And uh, how dare, you know, we just let them ki kill themselves. I, I, I don't want to live like that, and so people are like that. And an awful lot of Catholics are ashamed to hold up the cross, and you say, you know, there's something important about suffering. And I don't have time to give you all the stories, but I'm a priest and I've walked with people in their final journeys. I want to tell you that some of the most important things happen for people in those final sufferings. They often bury the hatchet. They're, 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 they, they, they experience humility and they finally call out to God in ways they never have before. God is doing important work through the cross. The cross brings glory. Okay? And we're embarrassed to talk about that and to say to people, you know, you should take up this cross. And we shouldn't just, now we should do our best to help alleviate unnecessary pain and help people to, you know, we should do the thing, you know, comfort and all, but at the end of the day, we have to be willing, or again, the question of abortion. Well, what, Father, she's been raped, and uh, how dare you? Isn't that unfair to ask her to carry the shell? Yeah, it may be, it's not unfair, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it, that child did nothing wrong. And we have to say, this is a cross. We need to help her carry it. But we have to say, you can't kill this kid because it was conceived by a bad guy, even if you were a victim. There are just crosses we have to ask people to carry. And we have to help them. We have to be Simon of Cyrene, but we can't just throw it away. Jesus held up the cross and said, and St. Paul said, I tell you with great sadness in my heart, there are many today who constitute themselves as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their belly. 
and they glory in their shame. See, And some of those people that were ashamed of the cross of Christ or enemies of the cross of Christ were Christians themselves. And part of our problem today is that we have not insisted that there's a place in all of our lives for sacrifice. So, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.